This June, me and my team headed back to New Hampshire to visit Porkfest, an annual festival for libertarians, free staters, and pretty much anyone who wants to live their life free on their own terms. It's an amazing event filled with all sorts of interesting people. This is one of the conversations I had there. Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. So we've been talking about this for a long time, uh, getting you on the show, and, yeah. and I've been on your show, and yep. and here we are, and, and the goal is to not get demonetized or banned on YouTube. But <laughs> Well, you shouldn't have invited me, Matt. Come on. How much trouble have you had with with social media? Do you do you find yourself do they pull your shit down or anything? Yeah, uh, I mean, I I've had some tweets where I've gotten you know weak suspensions and things like that, but uh, I run with a pretty rowdy bunch, so uh, I've learned I've learned where the line is. You draft right behind them, and they go down, and no, hundred percent. Like, oh. I'm always using them as like human shields. So I assume we're talking about Reed at this point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Reed, Toad, the whole Tower Gang crew—they're—they're they're all a bunch of savages. So I'm—I'm um, I'm the only one that hasn't got, uh, you know, actually banned from Twitter. So I've grown progressively on there, and I just kind of—I have to keep my head down because I'm like the the lead marketing guy now for us. So yeah, it's uh, it's tough. Uh, you know, I'm always I'm always crafting my message in a way that's like right to the line, and then I just kind of stop there. And I, um, my style, as you probably know, is is quite different. Like I'm. Um, and I, I don't pretend that I have the right strategy on communicating ideas. And I think yeah. I'm not sure there's a singular. Right no, I, I think you you have almost have a division of labor where you make me not look crazy, mm-hmm. and that that's pretty cool. That's perfect, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, that's... people would be like, "Wow, Kibby's Kibby's nuts." <laughs> yeah, we look like moderates compared to this crowd. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so my audience may not know that much about you. Sure, so I'd love to. I, I know a little bit about your story, and I feel like you got uh, red-pilled by, by lockdown, saying, what on earth is going on? So give us a little bit of background. Like, why are you here? Like, why are you doing this kind of stuff? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm a, I am a second-gen libertarian. My dad uh, found Rothbard in the 70s, so uh, I was born in the 80s. And even though I wasn't raised by him, he still kind of instilled these principles of liberty and, and a passion for it. But I, I never... Basically, the world was sane enough that I didn't feel as if I needed to be politically involved. Uh, I became a mortgage broker. I started a, a private money mortgage lending company, managed a couple hundred million dollars, was very successful, loving life, playing beach volleyball like 15 hours a week. Couldn't have had a better life, honestly. And then the lockdowns happened. And I was in San Diego, California, and they were pretty harsh. Uh, they shut down the beaches, you know, and I think... <laughs> did, you get, did you get arrested for surfing? I wasn't one of the ones that got arrested for surfing, but I did get threatened with arrest for playing volleyball. And I was like, this is just madness. Um, I like to say that, you know, I wasn't involved or I wasn't interested in politics until politics became interested in me. Mm -hmm. And I was just I had no choice, man. I I really felt like this was a level of tyranny verging on totalitarianism that anybody who was sane had to start to rise up. And I was fortunate in that. I had enough financial resources that I could essentially close my business and retire. So I just started to use my podcast outlet, Liberty Lockdown, to vent about the lockdowns and, and trying to reclaim our liberty. And uh, I found that pretty quickly there was an audience there that enjoyed my rage. You know, uh, I think that a lot of libertarians um, that were in the podcast circuit, certainly not everybody, but they kind of dealt with it in a philosophical argumentation level. And I was just like, F these people, you yeah, know, like, yeah. let's fight. Yeah. Um, so 
that's that's kind of how how I came to be. Well, you're being generous to some libertarians who totally <laughs> took a dive. Well, yes. No, yes. I mean, those those ones were bad, but I'm just saying there was still, like, even for the people that were opposed to it, it just didn't have that kind of, like, Alex Jones 1776 rant style, so I tried yeah. to bring a little bit to that. Yeah. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> um, so I, I we, we took the opposite approach, and it's kind of funny because my, my wife, Terry, would would tell me that I've been a just a miserable son of a bitch to be around the last two and a half years because as cynical of a libertarian and, and as skeptical I, as I am of government power, I didn't see this coming. Mm-mm. Not at all. But no. But we tried. Like, you go back and look at, I'm, I'm still proud of this essay, but in early March, I wrote my first critique of, of, of lockdowns, and I think they were like 48 hours old. Oh. And you didn't know at that point like, is this, in fact, the zombie apocalypse? Because, you know, they're telling you, right. and you're like, I don't know, maybe this is maybe this is the big one. Um, but even if it was the big one, the idea that you would lock down the economy, to me, was, was insane. You're going you're gonna to kill a lot of people. You're going to hurt a lot of people mm-hmm. by preventing people from, from producing and, and working and, and doing all the things that people do to survive. It was just um, irrefutably true, yes. But I, my tone was was reasonable i was trying to speak to scared people but if you look if you look at what i've done over the last two years i'm i I sound more like you Mm. today Mm -hmm. than i sound like where i was two years ago because it's it's a it's a lot more than a bad policy mistake it's 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 like a it's like an opportunity for the omnipotent state to 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 take control Uh, absolutely i mean i I view it as a war crime, essentially, without a declared war. Um, yeah, I, fortunately, we now have the benefit of hindsight, but people like you and I can actually look back at our track record and say, what what were we saying when no one knew yeah. what, how, how dangerous this was? And I, I think that that was a good test to put all libertarians through. Like, do you actually value human liberty over safety? Yeah. Um, and I passed it with flying colors, and I, any of the libertarians out there that I love and respect did too, and... You know, those those that chose to side or err on the side of caution and permitting the lockdowns and permitting the mandates and all these things. I mean, I'm just I'm very grateful, actually, because it turned out that so much of this was nefarious in nature from the Wuhan lab to everything else that was involved with Fauci. Uh, you start to get into a, an area where anybody that defended this stuff was just just looks terrible now. Right, so. Right. Uh, and I think that's it's funny because usually that's how it p- plays out. You know, the government overstates the issues, they obfuscate, they hide their own culpability, and uh, you can just kind of err on that side when yeah. you're an- analyzing things. And in, even, like, and this was, there was this there, there was this mantra in that first year that um, there are no libertarians during a pandemic. Mm. Yeah. And my reaction not knowing anything is, no, this is precisely when we need libertarians. When, 100%. When you don't know anything, mm-hmm. except... That the government fails precisely when it's supposed to do things that are within its legitimate functions. That, Gover- that, government always fails. Yeah, well, that and also I don't think the state is ever more dangerous than when people are afraid and they don't know what's happening. And that's when you need principles and you need you know liberty-minded principles, ideally, to counterbalance that push. Uh, I think I was really radicalized in, you know, after 9-11, uh, I was... I wouldn't say that I, I certainly wasn't on board with any of the militarism, but I, I definitely had some bloodlust, you yeah. know, where I was like, my people got killed. And I, you know, I, 
So I, I felt after living through that experience, I don't know. I mean, granted, I'm old enough to have done so. So the younger libertarians, I, I give them a little bit of a pass. But the, the ones that are our age, it's just like, how did you fall for this again? You know, like, yeah. how did you fall yeah. for the fear mongering? How did you fall for allowing them to strip us of the rest of the Bill of Rights right. in this moment? It's just yeah. madness. Well, that's um, I'm I'm going to age myself because my my moment of rage was actually the invasion of Kuwait. It, mm. wa it wasn't Afghanistan. It wasn't Iraq. Um, but in D.C. in libertarian culture, I think I was the only guy I knew that was like, this is bullshit. Mm. This is a disaster. Um, but I've noticed this pattern, and this, I'll pick on my, I, I live in D.C., I'm part of the, the Beltway crowd, I guess, but I've noticed this pattern where the entire infrastructure that we've built, there's, there's beautiful think tanks and there's activist groups, um, they really, really do a good job except when it matters. <laughs> <laughs> you mean when we need them? Yeah. yeah. That's not and good. and there's, there's only a couple times in my lifetime that feel like these, these are existential moments when we have to step up because nobody is right and certainly the war on terror was one of those things 9-11 um i felt like kuwait to, at a lesser extent was but perhaps those two things go together in some mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. the wall street bailout yep um i'm not going to name names but but nobody was there nobody opposed that inside the beltway right um and I'm, I, I should pick on conservatives too because you know they they claim to be for for limited oh, yeah. government but it didn't happen <laughs> The, the lockdowns and the bailouts during COVID, yeah. plus the 0809, just they they lost their fiscal conservative stripes. That's yeah. a done deal. So, like, it, it strikes me that if if we exist for anything, it's to speak up when no one else is is going to speak up. And it's in my opinion, it's basically our we don't have political power. So, what other use is there? You know, like it's like that is what we are there for is to be kind of a bellwether or a stop on the encroaching state. Yeah, and. It's just devastating to me, honestly. Like, uh, I think that's that's really why I got involved with the, the Libertarian Party and the Mises Caucus was because I felt like the Libertarian Party failed us once again, you know, when they had such an... I mean, it was a layup. It was a yeah. <laughs> softball right over the middle of the plate, and, and they didn't hit it out of the park, and I just didn't understand it. And I think that's why so many young people decided that, all right, well, it's our time now. You know, yeah. like, the Ron Paul legacy will live on, and... We're going to be that. I said this to the New Hampshire guys, uh, Mises Caucus, the New Hampshire LP. Um, they did a show as well. And I, I now remember the, the moment I was on a big, big clubhouse gathering when clubhouse was cool for a hot minute. <laughs> and it was the official Libertarian Party clubhouse gathering. And I just thought it was obvious. I spoke up and I said, it, this is our moment, like lockdowns. This is our moment to differentiate ourselves between between us and the duopoly. Yeah. It was silence. Like nobody, everybody, everybody was like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid. It, so it, it was sort of a, a frustrating thing. And I think, I think that possibly was a tipping point where the Mises guys got some traction. Oh, yeah. I mean, they already had traction, but, but like no, the tipping point. No, it took off. A hundred percent. I mean, that's, I came out of nowhere. No one knew who I was. And I was just like this is my thing you know yeah. like I'm, I'm going to stake my claim on being anti-lockdown and i and i really didn't care what the transmissibility or the you know lethality rate or any of that stuff i was just like no 
you, you don't have the right to lock us in our house and force something in our body. Like that, that's a principled stance that it doesn't matter. If it was the Black Plague, we would voluntarily do so. You don't ever have to mandate this. But yet the Libertarian Party, having this gift offered to them to truly differentiate themselves, to show why we are so much better than the other two options, and yet nothing or very little. And you know? it, it's such a radical position that people should be allowed to leave their house. It's so radical. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, like that's that's this way is, out there. Like you, sh you should totally get banned for saying such a thing. This is why we're on terrorist watch list, because yeah. we think we should be able to leave our homes. It's, yeah, it's radical. It's insane. So so your 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 podcast is now like a thing like you, you've had a tremendous amount of success. Can you give us some some brag numbers? Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm doing like anywhere from 70 to 100,000 downloads uh, per month. And that's bonkers, you know, yeah. from I, I only started it two years ago. So it's it's thrilling uh, because more than anything, because I get to talk to people like you, you know, people that I I followed for a long time that I've looked up to. I'm now friends with Scott Horton and Dave Smith and, you know, Eric July and all these people that I like idolize, basically. Um, and they, it's just been such a welcoming thing to have them all embrace me and, and offer to to help. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I feel like I'm, I'm living a dream, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, the the show itself is like top 250 on Apple Podcasts for news uh, most months. And, you know, that may not sound like much, but when you consider that I'm some radical libertarian, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I love it. And I, I've gotten, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of DMs over the past two years with people thanking me, encouraging me uh, to keep going because it, it made them feel sane. It gave them the courage to, you know, quit their job to avoid a mandate. They started a business. They're now succeeding. You know, it's just... Uh, man, I'm almost gonna well up. It just feels, it feels like, I'm I'm doing so much more for civilization than I was as a mortgage broker. So it's, it's very gratifying, and it's it's kind of cool, uh, particularly at these moments when you feel all alone to discover that you're not exactly. Yeah, and you get a little little bit of your hope back for humanity because, and I think I think <clears throat> now because the the fight is just starting. Like like lockdowns were the beginning of something. Unfortunately, yes. And and all we've we've built all of these these constituencies that are government sanctioned or government itself. This I call it the pandemic industrial complex, <laughs> but it's it's the NGOs and it's the government agencies and it's everybody that's feeding off the system. Like yep. like we're going to be sticking um, swabs up our nose for the rest of our lives because there's now a covid test industrial complex. Yeah. And the profits are fat. Mm hmm. And it's not going away, but the, the but the thing, and this is what I want to talk about. The thing that is most scary, and it really started with with vaccine mandates and having to show your papers. And if you're in New York City, you didn't just show your papers, but you had an app mm -hmm. that was starting to track your your responsible behavior. And I'm sure that's all it'll be used for. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I trust them. I, I do. <laughs> And and so I started talking about the Chinese social credit system. Yeah. And and I had uh, Lily Tang Williams on the show to talk about that. And my friend Lee Schooland, both of whom survived Mao's cultural revolution. Right. So they they know of what they speak. Um, and it, it it struck me that 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 infrastructure where in China, uh, two things of note that are relevant to, to ESG, which is where I want to go. One. It's not a government program. No. It is a government-controlled program that right. is implemented by financial institutions and tech companies 
And, and surely in China, the, the line between those two things is more blurred, hopefully, than, than what's going on in the United States. But it's, it's marginal uh, difference, yeah. but yeah. Um, and if you are not a good citizen in China, you know, it starts with, are you vaccinated? Are you boosted? But it also is then, well, did you say anything against the government? Mm -hmm. Or did you ever like a Facebook post about Hong Kong? <laughs> mm -hmm. Whatever it is, like, and, and there's an infinite number of sins you could commit against, uh, against the government. Um, if you do those things, they take away your bank account. Right. And they take away your job. And they take away your ability to feed your kids. And, and it strikes me that that same infrastructure is what's going on in corporate America with, with ESG. You can get deplatformed in a you way it. that is devastating. Yeah. But I, I want to, and, and you're going to teach me as well, but I want people to get a sense for, for what this is, ESG, because everyone's talking about it, but, but let's talk about what it is and where it came from. Sure. Uh, well, I think you nailed the application of it and, and the reason that it's so dangerous. But while many libertarians and conspiracy theorists were out there warning about social credit scores, simultaneously they were backdooring corporate credit scores via ESG. So 2004, Kofi Annan, who was the uh, Secretary General of the UN, he sends out a letter to the 50 biggest businesses on earth and he says, we need to implement environmental, social, and governance into your business practices to help with basically carbon emissions, the Green New Deal. And stunningly, almost all of them, if not all of them, respond positively, saying, sounds great, let's sign on. And I think that that goes to show how long running this issue is where big business has been in bed with big government and they realize where their bread's buttered and they can't really push back. And they know that ultimately, if they go along with what the U.N. says, if they go along with what Congress or the White House says, uh, ultimately, they're going to their bottom line will benefit. And the American people or the people globally now will suffer. I think that's what makes ESG so concerning is that it's not something we can vote on. It's it's not a nation. It's not a single government that we can topple. It is global in nature. It's basically unstoppable unless people there's some sort of populist rebellion against it or at, at minimum an, an investor rebellion, which is starting, thankfully. Uh, so do you want me to give like the the entire groundwork of it? Yeah, do it. Okay. So environmental obviously is environment. Uh, social would be justice. And then government or governance rather is the, the makeup of your board, how woke your policies are, things like that. So it's not really governance in the sense like um, governance, uh, governance uh, um, scores in the old world would be quite important because like are you ripping off shareholders? Um, right. Are, you, are your books clean? No. Has that's what, nothing that's, to do with that's any what, of that. That's what governance used to mean. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it has nothing to do with any of that. Um, and ultimately, it doesn't have anything to do with the environment either. You know, the, there's this term called greenwashing, where if <laughs> essentially they they are now able to get companies like ExxonMobil to have uh, an acceptable or a very high-ranking ESG score because they put minorities on their board, they do, you know, some marginal investment into green technology and all of a sudden they have a higher rating than tesla which is producing the majority of electric cars it's just all nonsense um, but it's a it's a great way to cover what you're actually trying to do which is accumulate more power and wealth while shielding yourself with this you know social justice warrior 
badge of honor. And all it requires is that you have <clears throat> social media uh, messaging that makes you sound woke. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a complete bait and switch to the left. And I, I think that's that's the one thing I'm trying not to exclusively message to libertarians and conservatives on this issue. I'm trying to also reach out to the left and say, you guys are being conned in a very deep way. Yeah. Um, and if you are sincere in your faith that anthropogenic global warming is the end of humanity, well, then you also should be opposed to this. Uh, this should be a bipartisan fight. And as, as of now, it seems exclusively libertarians and a fringe element of conservatives. Glenn Beck has now made this kind of a, a topic du jour, which I'm really appreciative of. James Lindsay, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's uh, starting Strive Capital Management to try and create a competing ETF against BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. Uh, God bless him, and I wish him a lot of luck. But the, the real problem and the reason that libertarians are vital in this fight is that these companies, these money managers, have such a dominant competitive advantage because of their relationship to the central banks of the world and the Federal Reserve, moreover. And libertarians are the only ones that understand this deeply yeah, yeah. and oppose it deeply. So I don't know how we can compete because this market is so unfair. And we're going to find out. You know, We're going to find out if someone like Vivek can actually succeed. Expl explain the central bank angle. So they have access to the Fed window. So if you're able to borrow at next to nothing, which until recently you were able to. Obviously, the Fed has hiked rates over the past 90 days, so that's no longer the case. But um, for years, for a decade almost, you were able to borrow for nothing. And then you're able to arbitrage that, which means you borrow for less than you're able to put it out for. So the big money managers have access to that. Smaller money managers don't. Private banks, like myself, didn't. So I don't have access to the Fed window. I have to lend at higher rates which means I then have to deal with people that don't qualify for bank loans. It makes me uh, have to take on additional risks, so I charge higher rates. Uh, so it's not, it's, it's not explicitly an ESG thing. It's just um, the system itself favors the big guys and, Correct. and consolidates yeah. Yeah, this is, corporate power. It's actually two problems. I mean, central banking and the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve being you know the dominant problem because they have access to not just interest rate setting but also the quantity of money in the system. Um, they're a huge problem, but this is actually something that's occurring all over the world, from ECB to the Bank of Japan. All, like, all of them have been doing similar policymaking. And this, in my opinion, is why we're experiencing a global infa inflationary problem and likely the death of many dominant fiat currencies across the planet. So it's a huge deal. Very few people understand it. I mean, I was a professional money manager, and even for myself, it's a struggle because there's so much to take in informationally yeah um but if anyone's going to do it it's going to be the libertarians so so this reminds me of, of of the argument we have over social media companies where you know some libertarians will say and i, I think this is a lazy argument well it's a private company they can do what they want um and extraordinarily I, lazy argument now. on the surface i would absolutely believe of course believe that and but um you know, I'm also a student of public choice economics, mm. and, and I understand what uh, regulatory capture is, mm -hmm. where where um, big firms will work with the state to um, uh, create barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. And you're describing this in the in the financial system, but it's it's true in social media companies too. I still remember Mark Zuckerberg begging Congress to let him help write the legislation on how to modulate speech yeah. on social media. Like, 
I got all the lawyers. Um, I'm the dominant player in this field. Right. Um, the only person that's going to get screwed is the guy with a better idea. Yeah. That can compete with me. Um, but this is this is uh, this is maybe something else because it feels like political capture in, in the term in in the social media space. Um, so much of of the money on advertising and let's say on vaccines and COVID as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not the government itself advertising on social media, it's probably these um, uh, pharmaceutical companies that are the blessed ones. They're the ones that are going to sell the product. And, and you know, if, if Fauci doesn't like your product, he might trash it. Yeah. He might not let he being the royal he might not give it um, approval. Mm-hmm. And so you have this this uh, this sort of ecosystem where um, the social media companies are sort of captured by by the political machine, by the administrative state, and and I wonder if there's some of that here because you know what's what are some of the biggest clients in the world, and certainly the United States are government pension funds. So is that is is that well like why the hell would anyone say oh Kofi Annan says we should do this let's do it. Is, it, is, is there some capture here? Absolutely. Uh, what you just described in social media, I believe, is occurring in every big business across the planet at this point. Because the governments have grown to be so big. And they have access to the most important thing you can have access to, which is the printing of fiat. So they have outsized sway. And every CEO of every corporation, if they expect to maintain their position, has to play ball. Uh, this is why Elon is playing with fire so much by trying to acquire Twitter, because whether it's lip service or not, he's claiming he's going to allow us to speak freely. Yeah. And if we're allowed to do that, this house of cards comes crumbling down. I really believe that's why they've gone after him so hard. I believe that's why the ESG score against Tesla has been knocked down. It's not about environmentalism. It's not about ESG. Is the timing such that, that Elon started making noise about Twitter and then Tesla got screwed on the ESG score? It was within a month, I believe, like after. That seems explicit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's also tweeted out, you know, many times, ES- I'm starting to believe ESG is the devil incarnate and all sorts of like yeah. radical stuff. And he's absolutely right. But it's not something that you're allowed to say. It's like being a money manager and bad mouthing the Fed. Like you don't do that. Yeah. Uh, and everybody implicitly understands like this is where you make your money man what are you doing um but i think that's why principles matter right now so much because this is such a corrupt immoral system it's going to require some level of risk and self-sacrifice to fight back and if we're unwilling we're going to lose yeah severely so i should say um uh, logan on my team scolded me because i i make this argument about uh, political capture with social media companies, I am obviously not arguing that the solution is to let the government regulate what is allowed no. to be said on no. social media companies. They already are. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's already happening, but but um, it's, it's via coercion as a, as opposed to being explicit. Yeah, as opposed to Elizabeth yeah. Warren actually exactly being in charge. I mean that <laughs> that that's probably worse, but it's definitely not better. Yeah, no, I I mean this is the this is the problem is that. The conservatives may be willing to identify the same issues that we're seeing as libertarians, but they're ultimately going to turn towards the state to solve it. Usually, yeah. Let's just elect my guy and trust him. Exactly, and I think that's that's a fool's errand. 
they they will see the same power structure and the same mechanisms for control and they will say why would we abolish this when we can use it to punish our political enemies when we're in power it's just it's it's not a world i want to live in so yeah. we need we need people the, the you know the voting public even though i don't believe in democracy uh to really rise up and and on a bipartisan fashion say like this is not a trajectory we want to be on well how did like this and this gets is insanely complicated because you're talking about the united nations which is um is it a government entity i'm not even sure i think it's supranational. yeah i, I don't even know. i mean i know it's financed by governments of course. And, I, and we we largely pay, by america yeah. yeah we we pay our um uh bribe to it i guess <laughs> right is what we're doing um but we can't vote those guys out. Nope. Um, you you probably it, it gets complicated. Like every time you see a really stupid virtue signaling woke social media ad from Coca Cola, like I guess you could stop drinking Coke, but Pepsi's doing the same stupid shit. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So like I don't I don't know exactly what the strategy is. So I want I want to start, and maybe you have other ideas on the strategy. But but I'd love to hear about these. Um, apostate money managers that are saying we're going to do it differently and they're they are heroes from my vantage point because you know if i was still in the game and i've basically completely left it um it's probably what i would do you know and and i just i know that they're risking everything because they are they are fighting central banks globally like that's really what this is and i my personal this gets a little alex jonesy again but i really believe that the governments of the world because of their central banking capacity and because of the corporate uh, desire for positive relationships with the central banks, the governments are really the ones that are dictating what ESG consists of. As I said earlier, it's essentially, it's a black box that you can put whatever you want into it. You don't actually have to deliver on reducing carbon emissions. You just shift with the wind depending on, are you are you appeasing the government is really what this means. Yeah. Um, so. I'm sorry. What, what was the question? I got the, lost. The, the question is like, um, who are the guys fighting this, and, and oh, yes. what's their strategy, and is it is it plausible? And if not, like, what what are we supposed to do? No, it's totally plausible in that Vivek Ramaswamy is doing a media blitz, trying to inform investors that ultimately the ROI, the return on your investment that you should expect from an ESG money, uh, managed money fund, is not going to exceed what he can do. So he is trying to basically operate as a free market capitalist in a completely fascistic business model yeah it is savage <laughs> I mean, so what, what about the um the corporate structure itself and i i i've never done the proper research on this but i've always had this this somewhat radical view even for libertarians that you know the corporation the share the shareholder corporation is in fact a government created structure sure um, it's it's a legal structure, and I, I, I think I, I know what the benefits are, and, right. and and I think they're probably important. But but you do have some big guys saying, you know what, I'm not I'm 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 not going to do the shareholder thing because, and this was 15, 20 years ago, all of these same activists took over the board meetings and and really mm -hmm. just sort of badgered the CEOs into submission. True. I I guess that's probably part of this dynamic that that led to to appeasement. But yes. You know, are there are there business structures that are more immune to this kind of bullying? Well, as you said, I mean, if you stay private, 
you don't have to do what the shareholders say. So then you have a real opportunity to innovate and stay entrepreneurial. Um, you get bogged down with bureaucracy and, and shareholder votes. There's like, there's obviously positives and negatives that come along with, with both routes. Uh, I don't, I don't really know how it is that a, a pri- like I, I, this is going to be the true test. Like if Vivek Ramaswamy and Strive Capital Management can succeed against the BlackRock State Street vanguards of the world, these guys, I, I haven't gone through the figures yet, but I'll, t- I'll tell you now, BlackRock has over $10 trillion. State Street has, I think, $6 trillion, maybe five. Um, and what was the other one? BlackRock. Vanguard. Vanguard has a little bit more. Like they're right in between, like seven, eight. So we're talking thirty trillion or so between those three. Yeah. And then you have other capital managers that are also playing this game, but they're a little bit smaller. A lot of people estimate it's it's somewhere between thirty and fifty trillion. So it's like more. It's at least the GDP of America, probably double to triple of it. That's under ESG capital uh, or ESG guidance. So, like, can these guys compete, man? Like, I. I I honestly, I don't think anybody knows. I think Vivek, if he was being, if you gave him true sermon, he, uh, serum, he'd be like, we're going to find out, man. Like, yeah. We're going to find out. I mean, what's the, the uh, this is not in my field, but the, there's a trade-off. Obviously, um, ESG limitations on investment. It's no longer about creating shareholder value. It's Correct. about. Stakeholder. It's about stakeholders. Yeah. Which has nothing to do with uh, creating a return on investment for shareholders. Right. But um, but brilliant how they labeled it though, you notice because if you're not paying attention, you just go yeah that's what that's what CEOs do right you know they they do what the stakeholder wants and you're like no no no, no. they do what the shareholder wants yeah um, I don't think there's a I don't think that's an accident they're they're clever with they the are words. clever they the really words. are and, I, and I, I honestly sort of like the word stakeholder and I, I sure. would define it radically differently than, than they do because the first stakeholder of course is government mm-hmm. second is um, the, the activists that want you to, to save the planet right. or redistribute wealth or, or kowtow to, to various radical interest groups. Yeah. Um, it, so, so the question is, like, not knowing all of these barriers to entry, like, the market should work. These guys should be screwed. The bad guys should be screwed. Yeah, well, that's the problem is because of the competitive advantage they have because of their access to the Fed window, it makes it very almost impossible. And and what's really key to understand is these guys don't have when I say 30 to 50 trillion, they don't have that money. They manage that money. Yeah. So the people that are actually entrusting their capital with these money managers, Larry Fink of BlackRock, the son of a bitch that he is, he he doesn't get to dictate what is done with that money. If the share, if the people that are actually entrusting him, he has a fiduciary responsibility to those people legally. Um, but as of now, it's been the case that most of the the people that have given him their money are not taking their voting rights on their own. So that gives them incredible sway, and so much so that Larry Fink writes a letter to every CEO on earth in an open letter for, format every year, where he says, "This is what I want to see." every business on earth do yeah. if they want my capital i mean it is extraordinary power but moreover it's extraordinary hubris yeah like this guy is narcissist like in the dictionary crazy so, so maybe and this this may seem like a not powerful strategy but i feel like we're always back to 
getting people to understand what's going on. Yes. And this get one's it, a tough one too. Yeah. And get and like it's, it's complicated, right? Yes. Yeah, very. Um, and that's that's where the government wins when it's complicated or it's scary or something like that. And but, again, probably not an accident that yeah. it's complicated. Hmm. Interesting. But the the perhaps the only solution is is getting um, consumers and and mom and pop shareholders to understand. You're right. How they're how they're getting ripped off. Well, see, this is the problem though, because the vast majority of the funds that BlackRock manages are pension funds. Pensioners right. don't even have a say for the most part. Right. It's going to it's going to require, and th- this is where it gets really creepy. So now you have uh, S and P Global, which is one of the major, like kind of like a Moody's. You know, they they lay ratings against companies normally. Now they've begun laying ESG ratings on states. So they are they're saying like West Virginia doesn't have good E score. Yeah, yeah. So they are now threatening to basically defund the businesses that do business in West Virginia. So you you I mean you can have any dissident state. Florida would be a great example, New Hampshire would be a great example where they they just say all right, you guys want to go you want to buck the trend, you want to go anti-woke, you want to go anti-ESG. Well, we're going to defund every big business that operates in your state. Good luck. Good luck functioning. I mean, this is that's the type of stuff where, you know, you start to see revolutionary conversations because you have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands in states that can be stripped away as they move to ESG approved states. It's it's evil. I like I don't even think I'm like overstating it to call it absolute evil what they're trying to implement. Okay, you've totally blackpilled me, and sorry. And we need we need to end this happy. Okay. So, so I I have a theory about how we might do this. I, I don't know if it's going to work, but we're at Porkfest. Cheer me up, please. I uh, need it. the Free State Project. Um, this event has been sold out for the last couple years, and more and more people are moving to New Hampshire seeking more freedom. Yes. And they have Thank pers- goodness. persuasively convinced me that there is a peaceful citizen revolution in the state pushing back Mm -hmm. and and i still think um for all of the the confusion and complexity um government or lack thereof goes to people that show up and care about it yeah and it's at the margin like most most people don't care and i don't think i don't think they should be blamed for not knowing or caring because they're they're working they're raising their kids they're doing the things that that free people should be doing but it strikes me that this is one of those experiments that might actually work. Totally agree. Do you think this is your first time? Yeah, this is my first time. I've been thrilled, overjoyed with the experience. I mean, it's just amazing. The people are amazing. Community's amazing. Uh, weather's okay. But uh, yeah, I, I'm very hopeful. And and let me give you some more white pills to go along because I this is what I do. I give 50 minutes of black pills and then I give you like five minutes of hope. The, the states themselves are now legislating, the, the red states are legislating against ESG. And they're saying, we see this game. You know, it's very few people, but fortunately there are some that are starting to wake up to the con that it is. Um, there's also money managers out there that are beginning to speak out and say, like, this isn't environmental. Like, this isn't any of the things that we're being told that it is. So I don't want people to feel as if it's hopeless. It's really not. It's just that... This has been happening for about 18 years now, 
and we're very late, you know, so we're like, we're trying to catch up. So the reason I speak with such urgency is because I want people to have an impetus to act, to say, I'm going to divest myself of BlackRock State Street Vanguard. I'm going to entrust my assets with someone I believe that will actually chase the highest rate of return, because that's really what capitalism is. It's not about, you know, doing the government's bidding. You're supposed to be providing a good or service that people want so that you make outsized returns. Like this is one-on-one stuff. So I think that there will be a, a pushback. It's already begun. I think that it'll pick up steam. And I think ultimately they can't outcompete us because we are still operating from a free market vantage point where innovation matters and they are not. It's the exact same reason, in my opinion, that the U.S. beat the USSR, you know, in the 80s and they fell apart. Unfortunately, it looks like the U.S. might dissolve, dissolve if we don't win this fight. So or maybe fortunately, depending on your vantage oh, point. Oh, don't break it. Don't break it dark. Um, yeah. Okay. Is everybody like optimistic now? <laughs> They're laughing. They laugh. So yeah. I guess I didn't win, but I yeah. tried. I tried my best. Okay. Where Where do people find uh, you and Liberty Lockdown in the show? Sure. Uh, Liberty Lockdown on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all over the place. Just search that. Uh, Clint Russell at Liberty Lock Pod on Twitter, and that's it, man. Really, just a pleasure to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.